The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world who knows that every day is Father's Day for Fernando Tatis Jr. and the San Diego Padres. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. We're not dads, but we love ours. That's absolutely correct. We are recording this late on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to everybody listening to this on Monday. We have a Father's Day related email that I'll be looking forward to reading. We're going to bring that uh, later on in the show. Uh, we're going to talk about Major League Baseball because that's our job. Did you know that today with their victory, the San Diego Dads moved to 25 and 29 all time on Father's Day? Hilly, is that do we have uh that's pretty underwhelming that's a concerning record i would say that's like the opposite of uh domingo santana having like a twelve thousand or 1200 ops on sundays but uh we will take it you know those are the stats we you you come to the barbacast for uh jake mintz how are you you are still in omaha i am i have returned home after a long day of travel and trying to catch up on some sleep but uh the college world series rolls on but we are here to talk about Major League Baseball. And Jake, while we are, we did just have another back-to-back week of Yankees, Red Sox, Sunday Night Baseball, we are going to begin this podcast talking about the Reds and the Giants because that is the kind of baseball podcast that we are. But before we get to them, uh, let's do our, our series weekend series review. So why don't you hit us with, with some results because, hey, I'm looking at a little mop on this sheet here. The Braves... Just quick work, 40-12 to 12 over the Rockies in four games. Rockies, who just got mopped by Arizona a couple weeks ago, getting mopped by Atlanta. That was the one mop of the weekend. The Tigers taking three out of four from the Twins in Minnesota. We need to get the Twins a couple tennis rackets so they can make a little bit more contact. Sweeps, quite a few. We had six sweeps over the weekend. The Giants over the Dodgers. The Reds over the Astros in Houston. We will get to that. The Marlins over the Nats, the Phillies over the A's, courtesy of Rebecca Black. Did you see that? Incredible. Oh, yes. That was a a quick retweet. That probably, that tweet alone probably deserves its own pod, but uh, we will acknowledge that and move on. Just some quick context. Rebecca, the, the Phillies, or the A's tweeted something that was like facing Philly on Friday, Rebecca Black. And Rebecca Black was like, sell the team, which is just so funny. Brewers sweeping the Pirates, Red Sox sweeping the Yankees, and then the 2-1 to one wins, Mariners over the White Sox. Lance Lynn, incredible today, and it didn't even matter. He struck out 16, and the Mariners went anyway. Angels over the Royals. Shouts out to Samad Taylor, though, who was excellent on Saturday. The Angels, though, have leaped over the Astros for second place in the AL West. The Angels probably deserve some love from us on the show Hopefully, we will get to them later this week. Padres, big series win for them at home over the Rays. They're starting to turn the corner. Again, it's like the ship that blocked the the Suez Canal. It's a slow process when you turn a big boat, but it is starting to happen. The Cardinals over the Mets in New York, the stoppable force and the movable object colliding and St. Louis coming out on top. Cubs taking two out of three over the Baltimore Orioles. Orioles salvaging the Sunday game to avoid getting swept. Big comeback today for the Rangers to take that series over the Blue Jays and the Diamondbacks continue to win, beating the Guardians in two out of three. But where we're going to focus our energy is the Cincinnati Reds, a team located an hour away from Jordan Schusterman, a team that is now 36 and 35. Sorry, that is an outdated stat. They are 37 and 35. They have won 10 in a row. They have won 11 of their last 14. They just beat the defending champion Houston Astros in Minute Maid. And this is a ball club on the rise. Uh, they've only won eight in a row. It will be 10 in a row because they're about to play the Rockies. But uh, only eight in a row so far. But they are now, right? as you just mentioned, they're right there. Right there, just, just knocking on the door, the, the, the top here 
of the NL Central, which is, of course, not the most inspiring division, but I will say it's at least more competitive and more inspiring than the AL Central, which isn't saying much. But let's talk about why the Reds are good. How do, how do they get here? Because a few weeks back, I watched Milwaukee go in there and they were within striking distance then. And that seemed like a, a huge opportunity for Cincinnati to be like, hey, here we go. This can be the time. And it was right before they called up Ellie. It was right before the, the series before they called up Del Cruz and they lost three of four. And it was just like, come on, this, th- that was your chance here. Maybe Milwaukee's figuring things out. And then since then, it's been the opposite. Milwaukee really cannot get out of their own way. And, uh, and I, I know they finally, they finally took care of business this past weekend, but the Reds are just on fire. They're beating good teams. They obviously, these young hitters have been playing really well. We'll get to some of those. And they're winning in ways that I, I don't think we necessarily expected, even if you were optimistic about this Red season. But that's what's interesting, right, is this is similar to the Orioles last year, more so than the Pirates this year, where for Pittsburgh heading into the season, I feel like there was more optimism than there was for the Reds, even though there was a lot of young talent in the minors here. The Reds felt a little bit further away to the point that, remember, earlier on the season, they broke the record, the franchise record for the fewest people at a game for the lowest attendance. Granted, it was against the Tampa Bay Rays on like a Tuesday. But this was not a team that two months ago was inspiring enough confidence to get more than like 5,000 people out to the yard, right? Yeah. And here and it, we are, and they are electric. Yeah, and it wasn't just you know the beginning of this season, but by the end, of, like the end of last year, even projecting into this year, it was so hard to see how they could take these big leaps. But let's get to why they are succeeding, because if you were going to be optimistic, you were going to say, hey, Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, and if you believed in the Graham Ashcraft breakout in spring training, you were like Graham Ashcraft. And it looked great in April. And Hunter Green has been very good recently. So Hunter Green has largely done his thing. He's still given up some home runs, but recently especially, the command has been dialed in a little bit more. Strikeouts are there as always. He's thrown ridiculously hard. Nick Lodolo was hurt. Basically, immediately, he had like a couple good starts. And then he went on uh, the, the IL with a foot injury, which is going to keep him out until the all-star break at the, at the, you know, at the minimum. And so now we're looking at a rotation that sure Hunter Green is still doing his thing. And that's a great thing for a team to have, you know, they income to an extension for a reason. But then we're talking about Luke Weaver and Ben Lively and Brandon Williamson and Andrew Abbott most recently has really elevated that middle of that rotation to, I mean, he hasn't allowed an earned run yet in his first three starts. And there was a lot of optimism about him considering how much he dominated the minor leagues to start this season. But when you look to those names besides Dela Cruz, you might have said, okay, like oh, Spencer Steer and even Matt McClain. You said, okay, like th- these are good, solid players. What, you were not looking at a lineup where when everybody was healthy and everybody was performing, you're like, oh, wait, no, this is a good lineup. This is a deep lineup. And even more than Pittsburgh. I think I would say maybe they don't have as many veteran guys that you're really relying on, like like at the Brian Reynolds level. Um, and they obviously don't have a cutch. We'll see. It sounds like Joey Votto is going to be coming back this week, and we'll see if he can have some sort of similar impact in, in a slightly different way. But it's it's fascinating how they've been able to do this, especially when you consider the bullpen is also a bunch of guys you've never heard of, but Alexis Diaz is probably one of the five best closers in baseball. So they have that, which is a, a huge – He has, I think he's – I don't think he's blown a save all season. I'm pretty sure. Maybe once. Um, I know he has a, a, a bunch in a row. But he's uh, that. That's that's certainly something that not all average teams have. Is an Alexis Diaz. And uh, when you combine that with these young hitters and just the, kind of the belief that they're playing with, it's it's really impressive. I'm very entranced by T.J. Friedel, who is yeah. their center fielder, a person who many of you folks on the listening maybe you've never even heard of T.J. Friedel. His name looks like it is a typo when you read it on a piece of paper. His story to the big leagues is remarkable. He was like hurt in college and missed a year and misunderstood the draft rules. And so no one draft like he didn't try and get drafted. No one drafted him. And he just signed with the Reds after the draft. And I think for the most money ever, it's like the highest paid free agent amateur signing to not get drafted. Pretty crazy. He's a really interesting player. He makes like no hard contact. He does not hit the ball hard. He does not square it up. And yet he has a 121 OPS plus and is a dynamic player in center field. He's really fast, super fun to watch. And then Matt McClain, who, when they drafted him out of UCLA, was thought of as a very safe pick. It was like, okay, maybe he's like a, if it all breaks right, he's like a second division, second baseman, right? But you 
are very in on Matt McLean and you think the ceiling is much higher and he has kind of shown more than maybe what a lot of the industry expected, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think you compare him to someone like Nico Horner, very similar profiles in how they were drafted at the time. And McLean was much more famous at a high school than Horner was. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing is that while the tools don't necessarily jump off the page and they didn't even in high school, like he was the kind of guy that was always one of the best players on the field. And even though he took sort of an un, a little bit of a different route by not signing, even though he was picked in the first round, sometimes they have a couple of those guys, you know, Lodolo was the same way, but it's, again, it's really impressive. It, it is not just, he, he's, he's the one that I think Spencer Steer is like a really, really good, useful player. You know, he 828 OPS, but like, but he, we don't need him to be a star. Whereas McLean, the, the, the degree to which he can impact the game on both sides, play a good shortstop, you know, run the bases really well, and also just like have way more pop than you would expect for someone who's 5'8 is really amazing. There's also an aspect of this team where the winning leads to winning, and it is a cyclical thing where the amount of self belief when you start winning ball games just reinforces itself. So, you know, you go on a hot stretch, and then the players are like, oh, maybe we are actually pretty good. And that oozes through everybody's veins every time they step on the field. I Let's spin this forward a little bit. So, like, we've now established, like, why they've been good, right? On the offensive side, it's Steer, India, McLean, Ellie De La Cruz, kind of, TJ Friedel. Mm -hmm. On the pitching side, it's Hunter Green, recently Andrew Abbott, and a very good bullpen. How sustainable is this? What do you expect for this team going forward? Are they actually good? Are they actually good and are they actually good enough to win a bad division? I guess those are two different questions. Yeah. Well, I think that like when we had a conversation in the in the Omaha press box with Mike Farron, like how would you divvy up the odds? And you know, you can look at the Fangraphs playoff odds for the NL Central and because of what, you know, the projection systems are still looking at rosters like the Brewers and saying this team is clearly a lot better. But at some point, you, you're going to have to make an adjustment and when you see how hard it is for some of these teams to actually put any sort of consistency together. Do I think the Brewers are still the favorite? Yes. But I think the Reds are clearly number two for me. Uh, I think that they've proven that. I think when you consider the other kinds of reinforcements that they should hopefully have coming, not just getting healthier with guys like Lodolo and if they can get Ashcraft back healthy and back on track to what he looked like in April, but also a guy like Christian Encarnacion Strand who how he's going to fit in to this lineup with Votto also coming back is going to be interesting. But they have more stuff in AAA pitchers as well where there's there's stuff coming there. And, you know, Pittsburgh sort of can say the same thing and to some degree. But, like, that's something with Milwaukee. You know, is it South Fralick? I know they are hopefully are going to get healthier too. But that's where I do feel like they, there's a good, a good amount of staying power here. Uh, whereas Pittsburgh's just been – like, the bad versions of Pittsburgh this year – and we're another stretch of it right now is is pretty like they look like a really bad team. Whereas even in April with the Reds, they didn't look like a bad team. They just they were not exciting. And then Ellie De La Cruz is really what changed all of that. So what's the vibe then? Is it one of kind of relentless hope? Like are these people are these fans kind of unhinged? You know, twenty twenty three World Series champions. What's been the atmosphere at the ballpark? Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, they have a little run there where they start making jokes about America's team. And I think that you can understand how they would kind of check some of those boxes. Um, the joke, the joke. You'll you'll appreciate this. The joke I was making uh, to Charlie Goldsmith, um, the the red, one of the Reds beat writers, is that you know, like England in the in the World Cup uh, with the you know footballs coming home. I feel like for the Reds as the oldest baseball team, I think we need to come up with some sort of version of that where the Reds feel like baseball is coming home. The red stockings are back. Here they are. And I know there's also some fans that are like, this team was pretty good not that long ago, but the lows of last year, remember that start, right? It was horrible, even when you looked at the, at the, uh, at the farm system. And it was also just ownership giving a middle finger to the fan base. Remember, the Castellinis who own the team literally said, where else are people going to go? I think of all of the wild ownership things, no one has ever been that blunt and that direct in, at least in recent times, to the fa- like addressing the fan base and saying they have no other choice but us. 
That is so insulting. And it remains insulting. Yeah. And I still have some skepticism about this franchise's organization moving forward about whether or not they're going to invest in the team. But mm -hmm. that the front office was able to turn this around this quickly and the way that they hit on a lot of the trades when they pulled up the studs mm -hmm. last summer deserves a lot of credit. Remember, every single front office wants to be invested in by the ownership group. It's not like Nick Kroll is just standing there and being like, oh, man, I hope we don't have any budget. Like, no, right. they have to work within the confines of what ownership is giving them, right? Totally. And they've done a very, very good job of that. And I would say Kroll is really well liked by players, staff. Like he is, I know that he doesn't necessarily, like he, he's certainly one of the more anonymous um, front office guys. But as you said, like certainly you get credibility when you put start putting players together on a roster that are performing. And, you know, Ellie De La Cruz is not because of Nick Kroll. That's scouts in the Dominican and scouts in all these different places. But like a guy like Will Benson is a great example of a move that they make, that they acquire, and they decide, hey, this is something, we see something here. We actually can turn something here that we're expected. You know, even guys like Friedel, some of the guys, even Fraley, someone that they've acquired, you know, in, in a trade. And, and then, as you just mentioned, guys like Steer, that they've kind of hit on um, in trade. So I think that that is where I, I'm optimistic because even though long-term, big picture, how big can we dream? Yes, there's clearly still some concerns and limitations here. But in the immediate future, like when we're talking this season, we see with this division that's begging someone to take it. I think they're going to hang around. I really do. I, I think the upside's maybe not quite as, as the same as Milwaukee if they get healthy. But I don't know, man. Like I, they're, they're, clear, they're clearly playing with a, a ton of confidence. And, and like when you have young players that are all finding success at the same time, there's the upside of that is they feel invincible. And that's when you're playing with an all-time Kavansa. There's also the case of if they all start struggling at the same time, it's harder to kind of get out of that. That's where it probably helps to have Joey Votto back around. Now, Joey Votto's been around. That's the other cool thing is that he's been a part of this too. I'm fascinated to see how he kind of reintegrates back into the mix. I will hopefully be there when he plays his first game this week. Uh, but it, it's that that is another element that we aren't even fully prepared for yet that is going to be really cool to watch. That is what I hope for the Reds. Because Joey Votto getting the opportunity to play meaningful baseball one last time is not something any of us anticipated, I think. Mm -hmm. I thought he was just going to, the Reds were just going to, you know, shit themselves off into the sunset and he was well, never going to get to play a competitive game again. But now it, how good he is, is like important. Yes. And it, we, we assume we were heading towards a, a Miggy situation, right? That is really where it felt like. But combined, it's not just that, because that's what we were looking at the team in March and April. But it was also Votto. Like, and he's talked about it directly. He said, like, it was not looking good. Like, he was not feeling good in April. And he and I know there was times in the offseason he wanted to be back by opening day, and that didn't happen. And he didn't, he didn't look good in spring. He looked terrible in his first rehab. But he's, And I'm not saying he's going to be great now, but the fact that he's got himself to a place where he can come back and he wants to come back and he feels like he can contribute is really cool. And the fact that they now might be in first place in the first game of the year could be close to first place, you know, while he comes back is, is amazing. So I'm looking forward to it. And as I've said, I feel very fortunate that this is how the red season has gone <laughs> since I moved here. Incredible. Let's pivot to a team that you live far away from, yeah, the San Francisco Giants, mm. who are on a W7. They have a better record than the Los Angeles Dodgers, who they just passed in the standings after sweeping them in Dodger Stadium at Chavez Ravine. The Giants are a confusing team because I don't really know how to talk about them without watching them every single day. There are other teams I can hop in and hop out and feel like I have a good feel of, the, uh, of a particular club, not the Giants. And that is because very few of their players are very famous and very few of their famous players have been that good. Like Michael Conforto has been fine and Mitch Hanniger has been bad and hurt. And oh, so yeah. like my dad can't name anybody on the Giants. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Can yours? Like could your dad name uh, a Giant? Could, that's a great question. And my dad listens to the show. Uh, happy Father's Day, Dad. Uh, let, yeah, what Giants could you name off the top of your head? One who I think was a decent shot was awesome today, and that's Logan Webb. Um, I don't know if he's gotten, but when you know, we've seen him do awesome shit in the postseason, right? Against the Dodgers. <laughs> um, so, like, this is Logan Webb is, I think, uh, the guy. But you're right. Um, and Jock, you know, Jock basically being what he was last year, and I know he's also been injured too, but that's a big part of it also. But I'm much more interested in talking about some of the new names that were not around at 21 or that have not been big parts in the major leagues recently. 
So let's talk about how we got here and have a similar conversation to the one we did with the Reds. Why is this team good? How good are they? It kind of starts in 2021, right? The most outperforming team in recent baseball history. I would read 100 books about the 2021 Giants. They win 107 games. They take the juggernaut Dodgers to the brink in the NLDS. Just incredible stuff. They come out last year and they are about as bland and lifeless and mediocre as I can remember a baseball team being. The defense just falls off a cliff. That was the biggest one. The older players like Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt really struggle. So they head into this year and our general vibe about them was, well, I guess they're just going to be really boring again. Carlos Rodon is gone. They didn't get Aaron Judge or Carlos Correa like they had hoped. They're going to finish 79 and 81 and we don't have to open their baseball reference page all season. Okay, (laughs) that was my vibe. I was like, anything I can cross off the list of baseball things I need to know a lot about makes me do my, it makes my job easier because we're trying to consume everything, right? And I, I had taken the Giants and I had kind of put them in the freezer, you know, like a chili that you make too much of. And now it is time to thaw that chili out and unpack what this team is about. I think it starts with Lamont Wade. Yeah, it has to. And he was such a big part of the 21 team. But he's elevated it because now it's not just like, oh, he's like the most clutch player ever and every single big hit was in high leverage uh, in 21. This time he's just been downright great. OPS nearing 900. Um, He's drawing a ton of walks, nearly even strikeout to walk ratio. He's, I guess he's playing first base, which is a, like, we didn't think about him as an obvious, you know, Brandon Belt replacement, but he's clearly become that. And that has been um, a massive, a massive development for them to just have a legitimately awesome everyday first baseman as Belt was at times. And so that certainly kind of cleans everything else up around how you can fit some of these other hitters into the infield and into the lineup. So yeah, him and him and JD Davis are kind of, you know, the old, they're both around 30 years old. Like they've been around, they've been on some, you know, a few different organizations and they are being maximized the way that we've seen and that we saw in 2021, both with Wade and then now with Davis, which I think the Davis trade, that one does not surprise me. Like, honestly, like in some ways, Davis is the kind of guy that is, is exactly who I would imagine could kind of figure out a way to really, really bring his power to life, even in that ballpark. Whereas Wade kind of showing it and then reverting and then being this good is really, really, really impressive. Uh, but I, there's some younger guys that I'm even more interested in, some of which you just got called up recently. And Luis Matos, we'll get to him in a second. But I know you wanted to talk about Patrick Bailey. The Giants catching situation has been fascinating because so the Giants have Buster Posey, right? He comes up in 2010 and he's Buster Posey. You know the deal. You know, white, he was decent. Captain America, generic, clean cut, catcher boy, hit, 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 World Series every other year. Legendary franchise player, right? Pencil him in. He's he's great. And and remember, remember how it ends. He has a 140 OPS plus in 2021 and is like, peace. <laughs> this is <was> fun. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know what? I don't need to play baseball anymore. Uh, good luck. <laughs> and so we thought, and you know, they could have maybe seen that Posey wasn't the kind of guy that was going to stick around until he was 40, like Yadi Molina. So they had drafted Joey Bart. And Joey Bart, who they had taken second overall, was not exactly flourishing. Uh, but at some point, they just, they were like, well, we've invested in this guy. we got to give it a shot. And they sort of did last year. And it didn't really go super great. Uh, and then coming into this year, well, then, so <laughs> then a few years ago, once Farhan is in, because Farhan, remember, Farhan Zaidi did not draft Joey Bart. I believe Farhan joined the Giants right after that draft. And so then when they take Patrick Bailey, another college catcher in the first round, you're like, you don't draft for need in baseball almost ever, right? But that was one of the more, like, immediately on draft night, it was like, well, that's a little bit strange (laughs) for them to do that. Like, is that the sign they're giving up on Joey Bart? And while they could not say that at the time, it has all played out and they have looked great because of the way that Patrick Bailey has essentially seized the job now from Joey Bart um, already, you know, not even halfway through the season. He's been really incredible to watch. And it is a great example of when front offices cut bait on a guy they didn't draft. They have no, you know, commitment to Joey Bart beyond trying to get the most out of him. If they think Patrick Bailey's a better option, respect to Farhan for being willing to pull that plug on Bart 
and give Bailey the keys to that position. Based upon what I've heard, he's really solidified things defensively for them, which is really important because not only was Bart a little shake, like really shaky offensively, he was definitely iffy-er than he had been kind of branded as behind the dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but Bailey, like again, when you when you see, we, they know it better than anybody. To have a and how sustainable is his offense so far? When he's striking out a ton and really not drawing any walks, we already seen Casey Schmidt, another rookie, who as he sort of started to run into some more BABIP bad luck than good luck when he's not drawing any walks and the, the you know the whole line comes down. But like you said, if you're even solidifying the defense, if you're providing any amount of offense that Bart wasn't anyway, then you're in good shape here, even if he's batting, you know, seventh or eighth. And if he turns into an all-star, the way that I assume some members in the Giants front office believed when they drafted him in the first round, then hats off. Like, I was felt I felt like I was pretty low on Bailey as a prospect, but here he is, and I, he's been really impressive so far. Switch hitter also. Last thing about Luis Matos now. Oh, Not yeah. Luis Matos's kid, okay? Luis Not Matos, Luis former kid. big leaguer with the Orioles, Puerto Rican, this Luis Matos, Venezuelan. Luis Matos, I know coming into today, he had zero strikeouts and five walks. Jordan, did he make it through today's game with the Dodgers without Kang? He did. No walks or strikeouts today, and he had uh, a hit as well. So, uh, great call there. He is, he's 21. He was a big name, like, when they first signed him and, you know, in before certainly before COVID, when he first made his debut, like on the complex, and then in 2021, it was like, okay, we we got something here. He was awesome in the Cal League, and then in 2022, he was awful, and I think he was dealing with some injuries. But like last year, and it's fine. He was 20 years old, and you know he was in high A, and he, he struggled. He had a 619 OPS in high A last year. I don't know what happened between the end of last season and the beginning of this year, where they send him. He wasn't even good in the fall league either, really. Um, but I don't know what happened between then and the start of this year where they sent him to double a and he's unreal. They go to triple a, he's even better. And now he's just in the big leagues at 21, but we knew the talent was there to begin with, but I'm just, I'm blown away by this, this trajectory when you saw what he did last year in the minors. So, uh, credit to them, clearly a talented player to begin with, but he's the kind of guy now when you talk about center field defense also. And you're kind of rounding out your team in a way that it's the, the pieces are fitting a lot better together, certainly than they did a year ago. And so that's what I think is really impressive. And now, especially with Hanniger, who just broke, um, had his arm broken by a, a pitch against the Cardinals, you you know the outfield depth is going to become more important. And for them to just throw this guy in there, I mean, when you have an 1100 OPS and AAA, it's pretty easy <laughs> to call on that guy. But to have a 21 year old guy like that, like we've been focusing a lot on. Marco Luciano is like an impact that, that, you know, him and Helio Ramos and Ramos hasn't really become anything at least yet. But if Matzos can be anything like that, like, like with the Reds, you start to get a little bit more excited. And the other parallel to draw with them on the pitching side is that they have Camilo Duvall. And while a lot of the other, and the other difference is that they have a bunch more veterans, especially in, in the rotation where you do know who these guys are. Like you've, you've seen all these guys pitch plenty and you they just aren't always the most inspiring names, but like they're adults in the room, as you like to say, and that's usually good. I am much more interested in watching the Reds, but I do believe the Giants at the end of the season will have more wins. And mm-hmm. that's just because they have more adults pitching that I believe in over the course of the season. Jordan, let's take a quick break. And after the break, we will be back with a little bit of Red Sox Yankees chat, some Henry Davis, some Paul Skeens, some Father's Day Jamboree. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world, and I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast, Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman. That's you. Let's talk about the Red Sox and the Yankees. The Red Sox and Yankees played twice today. They played on Sunday Night Baseball. Again, just like they did last week. The Red Sox boy oh boy, swept the Yankees at home. Big deal. Panic in the Bronx. 
I'm going to be there this week once I get home from Omaha. Mariners in town, Rangers in town. Nothing like walking into the Yankees clubhouse after a disappointing series and feeling you know, the tension of that room and the media members asking the difficult questions and making sure that the team is held accountable. But that's not what we want to focus on, the play on the field. I want to focus on this quote from Alex Cora. This is from via Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic. Cora said, I believe this was on Saturday, on Friday, sorry. This is on Red Sox-Yankees, just in general. Quote, I think it's too much sometimes, back-to-back Sunday night games. With all due respect to ESPN, come on. There's other teams out there and people want to watch them. Now, this is a topic in the baseball community that is discussed quite a bit. The Red Sox and Yankees, if they're playing a series, it is always on the weekend and it is almost always the Saturday Fox game and it is almost always the Sunday night baseball game. And there's a reason for that. Whether you like it or not, more people watch if it's those two teams. That is a fact of the matter. And so when Alex Cora says there are other teams out there and people want to watch them, he is correct. He is correct that there are 28 other teams out there that some people would like to watch. But the most amount of people are going to watch Red Sox-Yankees. And because we live in America, they will continue to be on in perpetuity. But I think my two takeaways from this quote is one, what we sort of got into when discussing and assessing the rivalry, the state of the rivalry, about how like Alex Cora doesn't care. He's like, he's not like swayed by the fact that it's means more. Like he's like, yeah, they're, they're in our division. These games are important. But like, I, but which transitions to the next part of my takeaway, which is that Alex Cora loves ball and Alex Cora watches a lot of other ball and he knows that there's other teams that are more interesting to watch than both his own and the extremely injured New York Yankees who are just a miserable watch. And while our friend Randy Wilkins, who tweeted tonight, the Yankees have the worst offense in the league right now, I was like, okay, Randy, let's settle down. However, if you look at their numbers since Aaron Judge have been have been has been out, he's actually right. <laughs> they they have the lowest, I think the Rockies, we'll have to see how it updates after today. But going into today, they had the 29th lowest uh, WRC plus since Aaron Judge has been out ahead of only Colorado. So maybe they're a tough watch. But again, this is from so a Jim Yankees. McCaffrey article. Per ESPN, games featuring the Red Sox and Yankees have averaged 1.9 million viewers over the past three seasons. Okay, so Yanks Sox averages 1.9 mil. That is above, that is up 30% from the average of all non Sox Yankees Sunday night games. 30% more people are watching. And the reason for this is simple. We all, the 28 other fan bases, are pounding the table saying, can we get something else? But when we say, can we get something else? We are not always tuning into that. Like if it's Reds Brewers on Sunday night, yeah, it's fresh. But like the Reds and the Brewers fans are watching and maybe some other casual fans are watching too. But there are just so many more Yankees fans than there are anybody else. There's so many more Red Sox fans than there is any other fan base. And so this is going to continue to happen. I love that Alex Cora is like, yeah, it's a little much, especially as a former ESPN employee who, before he had any allegiance to the Red Sox, was probably getting bored about talking about the Red Sox and Yankees every single Sunday night when he was covering ball. Yep, yep. So uh, it is It is funny that he's uh, he, he knows. He knows what's up. But it ain't changing. It ain't changing. Uh, if you want us to, again, talk more about the struggling Yankees, it's like, uh, you're still six games over 500. So relax. Sorry. <laughs> And I will have a better sense of where the vibes are at after I check them out this week Mm -hmm. in person. Mm -hmm. Let's pivot and talk about college baseball just for a second. So we're at the College World Series right now, or at least I am still there in Omaha, and a lot of our attention has been on the college game. We know that not all you folks are locked into the college game, but every once in a while, something leaps above the college baseball world and into the larger baseball world. And something very special happened yesterday night on Saturday A gentleman for the Louisiana State University Tigers named Paul Skeens basically pitched one of the most remarkable performances I have ever seen in person. Skeens is the projected number two overall pick in the upcoming draft, and he absolutely delivered on the biggest stage in the World Series against the Tennessee Volunteers last night, punching out 12 batters, but it was not exactly the K number, Jordan. It was how he went about doing it. Yes. And when you say, oh, okay, like we're used to velocity now and we know that players are throwing harder than ever. 
But what Paul Skeens is, is probably the hardest throwing college starter we have ever seen. And the ease with which he does it, and the fact that he has two other, uh, you know, arguably plus pitches, and the way that he used it against a very solid Tennessee lineup was amazing. But you don't, it doesn't matter who you're facing. Like, you have to know that he is off, he is delivering one of the best college seasons of all time. And this is a guy who is a two-way player at Air Force a year ago. So <laughs> this is not someone who has been famous since he was 15. He is, it has all come together at the same time, at the best possible time for LSU. And he will, in all likelihood, most relevant to the people listening to this, be like, oh, wow, holy shit, I was the first time here. He will, in all likelihood, start at least one more game, probably only one more game for the LSU Tigers at some point this upcoming week. So stay tuned for that, and we will let you know. And you should tune in and see what it looks like, because it truly is special. Let's move on to Henry Davis. Henry Davis, the number one overall pick in the 2021 draft uh, by the Pittsburgh Pirates, a catching prospect out of the University of Louisville, has matriculated his way up the minor leagues and has been promoted to the big league club, and he will make his debut, I believe, tomorrow on Monday. Henry Davis, a former guest of this show, of this program, and a friend of the barbecue. Jordan, give the people a Henry Davis overview, if you would. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Adley Rushman was taken, you know, number one overall as a catcher in 2019. And when the Pirates took Henry Davis, it wasn't quite as like unanimous. He's the best player in the class, but he was in the mix. There was no obvious one. They cut a deal with him. But what Henry Davis is, is one of the more driven, determined kind of, I am going to be the best and you cannot stop me in a way that it really comes across in the way that he talks about baseball. And we've been lucky enough to get to know him and the way that he thinks about baseball, the way that he takes his position seriously, a position that some people have watched him and say, oh, can he really catch? Can he really catch? A lot of that has to do with just kind of his physicality. He is ridiculously strong. Like the, the way that this dude is built, he does look like a catcher. Like he's built like a catcher, but kind of the the movements and the physical uh, I would say flexibility behind home doesn't necessarily translate the way that it does to an offense where the dude's just a bull who can hit the ball ridiculously hard, ridiculously far. And he's kind of combined what looks like it, it's, it's kind of like if when you're, if you're just look, looking at it for a little bit, you're like, Oh, this kind of feels like Evan Gaddis, but there's a lot more hit ability, a lot more hit tool, a lot more just pr- approach. He's not just up there trying to hit it over the fence, even though it kind of looks that way. And uh, he's really impressive. And he's been amazing in the minors this year. I'm excited to see him with Pittsburgh. Less unhinged on the internet. Evan Gaddis has kind of gone off the rails. (laughs) Not full Aubrey Huff, to be clear. Kind of a different vibe for Evan Gaddis on Twitter now. But certainly worth a peek. Let's pivot to Father's Day, Jordan. Three Father's Day things we want to talk about. A story, a game, and an email. I'm going to begin with the story. Charlie Culberson, who has had one of the weirder months in baseball history. Okay? He was called up, what, May 18th? I believe. Yeah, about a month ago. Yep. And he did not get into a game for the Atlanta Braves. This gentleman was coming to work and it was like being on, um, what's, he was like on leave. Like he got like a professional hiatus. You know, these companies that pay you to like go on vacation, right? That's like built into the contract. That's what Mm -hmm. Carly, Charlie Culberson had. He did not need to play in a major league baseball game for a month despite being on the roster. The best part is like he had a 489 OPS in AAA when they called him up. And I mean, it was almost like the Braves saying like, yeah, we'll just play a man down. We're that much better than all these other teams. And who's I'm the, sure Charlie Culberson. Who's got the best vibes? Like who in AAA has the best vibes? Like, Charlie, again, bring him up. But again, though, it's just like I and, you know, you you wrote a lot about Jeff Mathis, who was sort of in this role. But you could at least put it under the guise of, you know, emergency third catcher. And I know he wasn't even on the roster that much after the fact, but like, why can't we just transition transition him into a coaching role? Like, I don't, I don't understand why he has to be a player um, still and what that is. Like, I guess you're still, oh, he'll pinch run in the 15th. Like, think about how hard it is to not get in to play defense or to pinch run one time. Like, they had this for, with Guillermo, Guillermo Heredia, you know, but he would at least come in and pinch run. He would go in and play the outfield. <laughs> actually i was sent a picture of him um warming up the pitcher uh like between innings <laughs> so like he's he is just it is one of the more fascinating things dfa'd and like that very well, well may be the end of his career well i you you're missing the story here jordan so yeah. he was dfa'd today okay which is a bummer whatever charlie culberson's dad 
was supposed to throw out the first pitch today. That was the whole... You missed the story? I didn't even see that. Yeah, dude. The whole... Like, Charlie Culberson's dad was going to throw out the first pitch today, and Charlie Culberson was going to catch it. And then they DFA'd him this morning, and so they had to find someone else to throw out the first pitch, and it turned out that Michael Harris's dad, Michael Harris the first, I guess, was there, and they had him throw it out instead. I think it had something to do with, like, Sean Murphy get hurt, but they didn't want to IL him, and so they had to call out Chadwick Trump at the right at the certain time and whatever. But what ended up happening was, like, Charlie Culperson's dad got uninvited from throwing out the first pitch because they DFA'd his kid. I That is what is so weird because that's so strange because by them having him on the roster for a month without playing him, that tells me how much they respect Charlie Culberson. And then to do that... <laughs> <laughs> it's like you would think what they would do to someone who they had zero attachment to whatsoever. This is a great example of information falling through the cracks between the PR side of a baseball team and the baseball operations side of a baseball team. Why would Alex Anthopoulos and the front office ever, ever need to know who, wh- whether or not someone's dad is throwing out the first pitch of the game? Like that wouldn't even can pass in his brain. And yet I'm, you know, it just still looks really stupid and really bad, and I feel for Charlie Culberson and Papa La- Culberson. Last thing on this. I'm looking at their AAA roster. I'm like, okay, well, what about Braden Shoemake and Von Grissom? It's like, wouldn't you want to have maybe those guys up? But that their prospects, you want to have them playing every day, fine. You know who else is in AAA with them? Forrest Wall, who has never been in the major leagues and is playing extremely well. He's got an 815 OPS. He has 41 steals, has only been caught two times. Why isn't he in the major leagues right now? Like I, I like if if we want to, you know, have some. I mean, clearly Culberson's offering something, but I I need this explained to me. I need this explained to me. So Jordan, moving on to our next topic, we were going to draft baseball dads. You did not prep for this because you've had a long day, and I put it on you late. So instead of drafting, I'm just going to name some baseball dads. Do it. Here's I'm, some. Here's six base. Oh, seven baseball dads. <laughs> Number one. This is your board that we didn't get to do a draft for. I'm I'm excited. Let's let's see let's see if any of them were ones that I tried to think of uh, in short order. Go ahead, Fernando Tatis Sr. These are baseball dads. They're not my favorite. I think necessarily they're baseball dads. I think about a lot. Fernando Tatis Sr. Famous because he hit two home runs or two grand slams in the same inning. And father Fernando Tatis Jr. What interests me about him is that he was clearly a good enough dad that he was able to create. Fernando Tatis Jr. and guide him on the right path to become what he is today. He is also the guy who didn't step in and make sure his son didn't wasn't doing dumb stuff on a motorcycle and taking steroids in the Dominican when they were down there. And the weird thing when Fernando signed his contract extension and like some other random people get the money, right? It's just the, like something is odd there. He's both like a it seems like a present dad, but it just I think about him a lot. That's one. Number two, Chris Christie. Hmm. Tell, tell, please, please explain that one. Do you remember the time Chris Christie, I think twice, used the New York State government helicopter to fly to his kid's baseball game at Del Barton High School where Jack Leiter <laughs> played? Do you know about that? I do now. I thought you were going to bring up when he uh, played in a softball game and no one needed to see that. No. Now, do I agree with him using the helicopter? No. But it is good baseball dad behavior. You know, showing up to your kid's game in a freaking copter. I mean, that's badass. So Chris Christie, I'm not going to vote for you, but you do make my list of baseball dads I think about. Next up, Ron Harper. That was going to be my first pick is Ron Harper. Go, continue. Built like Dan Blazarian, but way less problematic. I love a ripped baseball dad, especially one with a thick beard. Just think about what it means to be Bryce Harper's dad, to recognize that you have... This stumbled upon this incredible talent to foster it in a meaningful way, to guide it through life, and to come out the other end like what a pretty good job Ron Harper did, right? Because we haven't heard too many stories of him like being a total nutso, like making Bryce run wind sprints in the street. You know what I mean? Like maybe that stuff did happen. But it, he doesn't appear to be like Baby Gronk's dad or like mm. LeVar Ball levels of like off could have been the rails could have been maybe it was a different time but i think like i think about ron harper i think about ron harper that's a great Any ron harper thoughts for you well no but it makes me think of jeff trout to be honest 
because Jeff Trout made it to the big, made it not to the big leagues, but he was like playing well in Double A, and then I believe he got injured. But like Jeff Trout being like a very generic minor league player who maybe then gave birth to the best player ever is also funny. Two ripped baseball dads who I want to see do an arm wrestling contest. Earl Stroman. Oh, Stroman. That's a great one. That's a great baseball dad pick. Yep. And Raj Boz. Shane Boz's wow. dad. That's more of a deep cut. I think I think there are a lot of people listening who know about Stroman Earl, uh, Pop Stroman. Boz, especially considering he hasn't he's injured and like barely mentioned the majors. But yes, I hear you. Next one, Bobby Bonds. I could read a whole book on Bobby Bonds. I think the 20th century, the late 20th century of baseball could be explained through the life of Bobby Bonds. Now, would that book sell? Probably not, but I would read it. I'm very interested in Bobby Bonds. And last, Jordan, baseball dad I think about, Bob Castellini. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's not the only. This is a very, very deep category. <laughs> of, of uh, dad owners. Uh, so yes, go ahead. Bob Castellini, the owner of the Reds, who has more or less bequeathed his team to his idiot son, <laughs> Phil Castellini, I believe is the guy who said that, uh, where else are you going to go? I love, I shout out to Bob Castellini. Love this guy. He's great. You know, all he wanted to do was, you know, give his kid a present of a baseball team and he did that. And, you know, if your dad gave you a baseball team, you would take it too. So happy Father's Day to Bob Castellini. You can't have Nepo babies without hardworking dads. You know what I mean? That's very true. Uh, let's end this chunk before we get to our email to finish this out with some trivia, Jake Mintz. How many father sons have there been in Major League Baseball history? I'm looking at baseballalmanac.com. 238. So, well, what, sorry, what was it? 238. Wow, very nicely done. 257, the most recent of which being Bryce Terang, whose dad uh, was a pitcher. I think Bryce Terang, not in the majors anymore. But yes, the recent one's Bryce Terang. Uh, did you know Dalton Guthrie's dad was in the big leagues? Uh, so that's one. Connor Capel's dad was apparently in the big leagues. Of course, Cody Clemens, you may be familiar with him. Jeremy Pena, Bob Wood Jr., uh, Gavin Sheets, all kinds of fun ones. And then, as of course you mentioned, Tatis is another great one there. There's also the four players from like the 1910s who were nicknamed Dad on baseball reference. Dad Clark, Dad Clarkson, Dad Clark with no E, and Dad Little. So we love you, baseball reference forever. Jake, we received an email uh, a few weeks ago from a listener named Benjamin. And Ben, uh, this was a, a fantastic kind of uh, Father's Day adjacent email that was really just kind of touched us. And I just thought this was really cool. And so for Father's Day, I am going to go ahead and read it unless you would like to read it. It's a lot of words, but we're going to read it because it's so good. And we, we appreciate it. And we should read more I will, emails. I will give it a read, Jordan. All right, let's do it. Go ahead. Dear Jake and Jordan. I've always wanted to say long time, first time, but more accurate would be to say that I'm a huge fan of how the two of you think and talk about baseball. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate how inclusive, intentional, and enthusiastic you both are. Baseball and life are full of ups and downs and a whole lot of failures, and your combination of humor and heart has helped me to refine my love for the game. Quick editor's note, that's the whole point why we do this. Yep. You know, Jordan and I could go like be accountants or you know, teach high school. But this is more fun and more meaningful, and we're very thankful that we get to do something where our love of a thing uh, reaches other people. So thank you for saying that, Ben. Ben continues. My dad introduced me to baseball with the help of Dave Niehaus, and Edgar's double cemented my lifelong Mariner fandom. Our road trips to ballparks all over Washington, Oregon, and California, along with tales of his youth where nuns stopped class to play Dodger playoff games, have led me to your wonderful podcasts. Everyone's baseball careers ultimately end, no matter how good they are. The beginning of Oliver Perez's 20-year career coincides with the abrupt conclusion of mine and the incredible way my dad supported me through it. My third year of baseball was a roller coaster. The day following my first selection to the All-Star team was immediately followed by a life-altering diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the end of my playing career. I went from beaming with pride to bawling, and before I knew it, I was scheduled for open heart surgery the summer before my freshman year of high school. 
Once the procedure was scheduled and my dad set about putting together a surprise realize a dream scenario, aka unsanctioned make a witch, make a witch, make a wish, where I got to meet Oliver Perez and the rest of the 2003 Portland Beavers, went on a sport talk radio show and had hats and souvenirs from 13 different minor league teams waiting for me as soon as I left the ICU. I always wanted to thank those 13 teams, to thank Oliver and thank the Beavers, and really to thank my dad. But as a team with complicated emotions, it was hard to do. However, with the fast approaching 20th anniversary of my heart surgery, and this being the very year that my guy Oliver Perez finally hung him up with the record for the longest tenured career for a Mexican-born player in MLB, this feels like the right moment to say thank you. Even though the conversations are one-sided, listening to you two wax poetic on baseball feels like catching up with friends. With this newfound, erst-pronounced friendship, I am now going to ask for a favor, as a friend, of course. Would you please help me in thanking and hyping up the following organizations and individuals that gave me hope when I had none? They may be minor league organizations, but they played a major role in forming my baseball fandom and faith in humanity. To Oliver Perez. The Portland Beavers, the Tucson Padres, the El Paso Chihuahuas, the Dayton Dragons, the Kane County Cougars, the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers, the Aberdeen Ironbirds, the Columbus Clippers, the Pawtucket Red Sox, the Lynchburg Hillcats, the Lake County Captains, the Las Vegas Aviators, then the 51s, the New Britain Rock Cats, the Syracuse Sky Chiefs, and the Hickory Crawdads. And last but not least, thank you to my dad, John O'Connor, for supporting me through my baseball heartbreak with creativity, empathy, and a lot of hugs. You're my hero. Thanks. Your friend, Ben. Ben, we salute you. We salute your father, John. We salute. We also salute many of these teams of which we have had direct interactions with. I know you just received a bunch of random hats. (laughs) This is quite the selection of teams, many of which we have visited uh, along our travels. We've been so fortunate to do this uh, over the last 10 years. Um, So very, very cool to see some of those names on that list because um, as, uh, in, in a very different way, uh, the minor leagues and these minor league teams mean a lot to us as well. and mean a lot to a lot of people and in many different ways. And that's what makes the sport so great. And that's why I wear a different minor league hat every, you know, recording. And that's why we always are trying to talk to people about those experiences even more than the ones in the majors. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, again, that really means a ton and, and for supporting our show and for saying those kind things about what we do. And uh, happy Father's Day to you and your your father, John John O'Connor. Remember, folks, you can email us, baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. We're going to be posting a lot more clips of the show as we move forward on Instagram. And I haven't told Jordan this yet, potentially even on a TikTok. So Whoa, make sure you out. check that out and you share those. We're trying to grow the audience on that platform. So if you would not mind, if you would not mind, if you would mind, just do it. You, you, you get what I'm saying, whatever. Um, like and subscribe, rate and review, click below, tell your friends. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Jordan, anything else? Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing as always. Yes, you can email us baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. And yes, ratings and reviews on wherever your podcast platform of choice does help grow the show and uh, get, get it to more people who want to hear us randomly reminisce about the Lynchburg Hillcats. Uh, thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back on Wednesday. Serious XM Podcasts.